Bible is the greatest story ever told, but it can be a little challenging to understand. No worries, though. Today we will continue our sermon series, One Story, the story that reveals His glory. This series has been educational as it spotlights the biblical narrative and the way that shows how the Bible fits together to tell one story. We are going to discover how the story of Scripture reveals the glory of Christ. To learn more about freedom, join us at our website at freedombiblechurch.net. Good morning, everybody. God is awesome, and he's not. God is a magnificent Lord, and I'm so glad that he is in my life, and I'm glad he's in your life. Jesus changes everything. Every time he touches our lives, every time he comes into an individual's life, he changes everything. Good morning. My name is Steve. I'm part of the pastoral team here at Freedom. And if you're relatively new to Freedom, or maybe you've been coming just a little while, pastor normally goes through a different book of the Bible. And what he does is he takes uh, scripture by scripture and text by text, gives us kind of the context of the word so that we kind of get a better perspective about what's happening there in the Bible. But this year, beginning this year, we started a brand new series called One Story. And what we're doing is we're kind of pulling back and taking kind of a bird's eye view of the Bible to see how it kind of all fits together. And we get a chance to see the foundation of it so that when we do go through another book, I believe Pastor is going through Acts uh, next after Easter. I think I'm looking forward to that, by the way. Uh, but what we're doing, we're taking this bird's eye view to see how the Bible kind of all fits together so that when we do go through a book of the Bible, we'll know kind of how it fits. Now, there's a couple things we do know about the Bible already. Uh, it is separated by two books. It's separated by the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, we can't shrug off the Old Testament by saying, well, it's the Old Covenant. We don't have to follow that any longer. We can't do that. Here's why. Because the foundational principles that we find in the entire Bible are based off Old Testament. And the New Testament sits on the shoulders of the Old Testament. And we can't shrug it off and say we can't, we can't, we don't have to read it. Everything that you read is fascinating because everything that you read in the Old Testament, just about every, uh, uh, every book will point to something in the New. And everything in the New, anytime you see something quoted in the New Testament, guess where it comes from? It comes from the Old Testament. So that's the foundation of it. The Bible's plan is to redeem humanity through His Son, that which was lost by mankind. Now we're going to recap just a little bit uh, from the last couple of weeks. The creation story. That's a fascinating story, isn't it? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the days of creation, he created mankind. And he, and he gave them a life that was 
uh, in perfect harmony with himself. And he gave him creation. The things that he created, he created in perfect harmony with them. Put him in the garden, gave him a purpose, gave him a design, gave him something to do in there in the Garden of Eden. However, man messed it up. Men messed it up. It's amazing to me that uh, uh, men corrupted the perfect union with God in the Garden of Eden. They did exactly what they were supposed to, not supposed to do, was to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's amazing to me that the story of creation and that little part in there where Adam and Eve, how the Bible says that the, that God made uh, God made man, and then he made uh, then he told man that he can't eat of the tree, and then he made woman. So I, I would imagine what kind of conversation took place between Adam and Eve. Adam knew already he was supposed to eat of the tree, you know. So what kind of conversation went on between Adam and Eve? And he had to have said something. Look, don't we can't. You know, he should have if he hadn't. We can't eat of this tree. And then, and then what's so fascinating is if you read in the text there, it says that the man was with her when she ate off the tree. It looks like he'd be like, hey, you know, don't, don't do that. But no, 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 he was with her at that point knowing full well they're not supposed to do that, not supposed to touch the tree, not supposed to eat of the tree. And here's why. Because men, we don't like, well, men and women, we don't like no. We don't like don't, do we? The other day, well, not the other day, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and myself and Kaylee, we were in, um, we were in Costco, and they had a post there in Costco, and sure enough, honest to goodness, they had a sign on there, wet paint, don't touch. And I, and I told Kaylee, I said, Kaylee, don't make sure you don't touch that pole, when you go around it, and here I'm going to make sure it's not dry, it's not wet. <laughs> and I reached out and touched the pole, thinking, "Well, it said do not touch, but I, but I didn't anyhow." And they ate of the fruit, and they severed this perfect relationship they had with God. They severed this relationship they, that they had with all of creation, and man and woman created this spiritual death and physical death for all of mankind. Here's another great part of this I really thought thought interesting. In chapter 3, verse 14, I believe, God cursed the serpent. And in verse 17, he cursed the ground. And and I wondered when I read that, when I, I, I thought, how awesome that God showed grace so early. Because you think about it, he could have wiped them out and started over with somebody else. But he didn't. He gave man grace. And it helps me to... Remember why I'm here, because of grace. Where would you be without grace? What would I be without grace in my life and the mercy that he gives us? I know where we'd be. We'd be wallowing in our sin. We'd be wallowing in our addictions. We'd be wallowing in the things that we should not be wallowing in, and we'd all wind up in the bad place, Burke County. (laughs) I'm not just kidding. Those of you online, if you're from Burkin, I'm just, I was going to say South Augusta, but some people in the room from South Augusta, they probably want to fight me later, so I didn't say that. <laughs> I thought it was awesome, though, that he didn't curse man, and he found grace, and, and where there had been no grace, then all of a sudden, grace was there, and grace abound. Then all of a sudden, up shows hope. We've got the grace package down. 
Now the hope comes. Genesis 3.15. I put enmity, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Talking about our Lord and Savior. And you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise of the gospel following the first grace of the gospel. The hope of the redemption was announced. Eve's offspring would defeat the serpent. Then in Genesis chapter 12, we find Abraham receiving the promises that he would make him a great nation. And we find his son, Isaac, and and then the promises pass on to Jacob. And Jacob has the 12 sons. And the 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Judah. And God kept his promises with there. And one of his sons' name was Joseph. And if you follow the history, it's fascinating. If you follow the, the, the line of Joseph all the way up to the place they were uh, uh, captives, you'll see that, that it's a fascinating story. And it's just like Sharon said earlier. You know, there's action and romance and deception and victory and disappointment. And there's mayhem and murder and success and failures. And it's everything that you can think of all right there. And that's just in the new, that's just in Genesis. You know, what you won't find is fiction, that's for sure. And throughout the Old Testament history, you'll find that the children of God would weave in and out of the presence of the Lord. I mean, you literally can turn a page in the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. You literally can turn the page and you can see the children of God worshiping the Lord and and honoring him. Then you can turn the page again, you find them serving pagan gods. I mean, they were in and out, in and out, in and out. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Over and over, they found, God found them unstable and ultimately found them unfaithful to himself. And if you read through and you're like me, I mean, I ask the question, why didn't God just do away with them? You know, they were so troublesome, they were so unfaithful, but he doesn't. He doesn't throw us away. He doesn't cast us aside because we have issues or problems. And regardless of the things that are going on in our life, God is graceful. God is merciful. God is kind. God is compassionate. And we are, we are, we are sometimes living a state of weaving in and out of where God is in our life. And I'm here to tell you today that his grace is sufficient for you. I'll tell you, because he keeps his promises, right? God is applied. God's grace is applied. Let me encourage you today. If you haven't read your Bible lately, maybe you skip around in it and you don't really know where to start at the beginning. You kind of look for some direction. Let me give you some encouragement. Start at the beginning. I know for years as a young minister, even as a young Christian, I didn't know really where to begin. The Bible was intimidating, and you'd thumb through it, and you'd, you'd get to read a little piece of Psalms and Proverbs. And, you, you know, and even when I read the Bible through, you ever use the app, read the Bible through in a year? You use that app, and it uses a little bit of old, a little bit of, little bit of Psalms and Proverbs, a little bit of New Testament. You kind of get this spaced-out feeling, you know? But if you haven't, I would love for you to see you get you a version of the Bible that you can understand, like an ESV or a New King James. That's my favorite two translations. And go right to the first book, the first chapter, the first verse, and begin to read what God did for the children of Israel. Listen, that's my prayer for you during this series. That's my hope for you, that, that, that the series would whet your appetite for the Bible yourself, Bible yourself, and become a good steward of what God's given us. 
or you can join a small group. <laughs> they love to eat. You ever been in a small group here at our church? There's some eating folks, and they love desserts. They love desserts. And, and the small groups kind of go over the scriptures in the Sunday service, and it's so fascinating. They love to eat, but they are very serious about God's word, and I enjoy it when I'm able to get to go to small groups. But see, sadly, most people don't get the word of God like they should. Sadly, the only time some people get the word is when they read it on the screen on Sunday. And that's the extent of their Bible reading for the week. And it's sad, really, because it's impossible to get to know God. When you read the Bible, you get to know who God is. Not just know about him, but know him. I mean, we know a lot about people. I know a lot about Clint Eastwood, but I've never met him. I don't know him, you know? Reading the Bible will get you to know God on a personal basis. Let me encourage you to find your word and find out what the word says for yourself. The primary purpose of reading to God, of course, is that we get to know him. Then at the end of the New Te- Old Testament, after Malachi, God goes silent. You know? It's kind of like there's no real ending to the Old Testament. Then all of a sudden there's this intertestamental area and it just goes dark. No new prophets, no new word, no, no, nothing revealed to the Jewish people. For 400 years, God goes silent. 400 years. Have you ever had God go silent on you before? I'm not talking about 400 years. We wouldn't survive that. You know, some, some of you feel, I feel like I'm 400 years sometimes. I feel like I'm that old. But you ever had God go silent on you? I have. When I first got into ministry, when I first got saved, actually, uh, my wife and I, or Sharon and I, got engaged. Now, I had already asked her one time to get married to me, and that was two weeks after we met. And she said no and shut the door in my face in that very moment. But I finally convinced her. See, I was a stud muffin back then. I know I don't look like it right now. But I was a stud muffin. I had hair. I had hair for days, you know what I'm saying? And it wasn't falling out either. So, And I was thin. I was bone thin. I was a good-looking man. But my wife was a pretty lady, you know? I had to have been handsome to land such a pretty lady, right? But in the min- we were going into the ministry. I was going into the ministry, and people would tell me all the time, Sharon's not right for you. She is not going to be a good pastor's wife. She is, she's flamboyant. She is dramatic. She is, she steals a room when she comes. She is not going to be a good pastor's wife. That's what they would say to me. All good qualities. And then they would tell her, don't marry him. He's not good for you. And that's all they could say about me. (laughs) I was from South Augusta. I was a poor kid from South Augusta. I didn't have a whole lot to offer, you know. And the people would say, you know, even our pastor didn't endorse our relationship that, we're, that was going to marry us. And this, this doubt created, this, uh, this inundation of negativity gave us doubt, gave us pause. And I went to the Lord in prayer about it. You know, I was, I was a brand new Christian, man. I could pray for a lawnmower, man. I was ready. 
you know? I was that excited about Christ in my life. I still am. You know, I'm an I'm a emotional guy. And you start talking about when the Lord saved me, you start talking about Christ in my life, man, it, it eats me up it, it, because it's such a personal event in my life. But then we're talking so much negativity. I just went to the Lord in prayer, and I was like, Lord, God, help me. It's sharing right for me. You know, and I'm like, God, you know, let lightning strike. You start making deals with God, right, when he goes something. Lord, let, let the lightning strike three times tonight during the storm, God, you know. Lord, let, 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 let lightning strike the neighbor. We don't really like them. Just let it hit them. <laughs> no, we didn't pray. I didn't pray that. Oh, God, let it snow six inches. If it snows six inches, then Sharon's right for me. Six months. I lay, the, I, was at the, I was living at what they call the parsonage where the pastor lived. Every time they had a pastor, the pastor would move into the parsonage. And I was living with the pastor during my one-year internship uh, at the Church of God in Monroe, Georgia. And I was, I was um, laying on the floor and crying, and the carpet was shag, orange. You know, it was ugly. You know, I was in this little office that would hold a, a desk and a chair, and that's it. You know, you barely could move around in there. But I slide the chair over, and I was on my face asking the Lord, Lord, is she right for me? And, I, and for six months I did this, and all of a sudden, out of the clear blue, a bell goes off in my brain, and he said this to me. He said, does God speak to you? Absolutely. He speaks to me within the confines of his word. And he said to me, seek me first. Man, it revolutionized me. I got up off that floor. I brushed the old carpet off my shirt, the shag carpet filings that come up with, with the, when you lay on it. And I began to pursue ministry. And I began to pursue the word. And before long, four months later, I was married to the most beautiful woman in the world. And I was in full-time ministry. And I remained faithful to the Lord. And God's given us a, well, given us a beautiful ministry. Now I get to hang out with you beautiful people. You guys are awesome. If you're not, or remain faithful to your prayer. I don't know what you're praying about today. I don't have an idea what's going on in your life. But if you remain faithful, my mama used to pray for me. Anybody had a mama pray for you? Or a grandmama? I would come home at 2, 8, 3, 4 a.m. in the morning. My mama would be waiting on me, man. And she wanted to pray with me. I wasn't in the mood to pray. I wasn't in the state of mind to pray. So I would school in my, in my, in my bedroom and she'd shut the door and lock it. And this lady was a, a, she was a hardworking lady her whole life, so she had, pretty, she had a working woman hands. And she would stand at my door. Uh-oh, I told you. And she would stand at my door and you could hear her hand going across the door, praying for me and, and interceding for me. And sure enough, God answered the prayer. It took a little while, and God may have been silent, but listen, stay faithful to your prayers. God will answer them. So we come out of this intertestamental moment. We come out of this 400 years of silence, and we bump up to what we call the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four given accounts of Jesus. Matthew presents the, the Lord as being the Jewish Messiah. Mark portrays the Lord as being the suffering Son of God. Luke portrays the Lord as being the Savior of all people. And John portrays the Lord as being the eternal Son of God. And so after the silence, the light switch comes back on. And the New Testament begins. 
and we find the people of God, uh, we find the people of God in a place where they are under Roman law. And they were suppressed by these nut jobs called the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Yeah, they were nut jobs. Ask the Lord, he'll tell you. <laughs> For real. Read it. The Gospels all also show us an account of a people who were looking for a virgin birth. Now listen, this is they were looking for a virgin birth because it had been prophesied in Isaiah that, the, that there'd be a virgin birth and they were going to call his name Emmanuel. And you know how long that was? They, uh, Isaiah said it's 700 years prior to that. So they may have been a little antsy. They may have been a little disappointed, but they were looking for a virgin birth. In Isaiah chapter 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give a sign, and behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name what? Emmanuel. We have to be reminded that the that the people in Jesus' day did not have the New Testament to read. The Gospels hadn't been written. The New Testament hadn't been written. So anything they had to refer to back, they had to refer back to the Old Testament. Matter of fact, they had to refer to a version, a version of it called the Septuagint that was written to the second or third century during this, uh, during this, this light-out part because they had started to forget how to read Hebrew, and so they translated into Greek and Septuagint, but they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the Gospels to cling to. It hadn't been written at all. And the hope of the Messiah, what they were looking for, was echoing throughout the, all the Old Testament, and they were clinging to you know, what Isaiah said, but really and truly thinking way back to thousands of years prior to that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Isaiah 9 and 6. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall sit upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All this hope, all of God's people looking for it, anticipating the coming of a royal king, thinking that in their minds this king would come and destroy the Roman law and destroy and, and silence these nut jobs, Sadducees and Pharisees. But the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth and life and death was anything but royal. In Luke's account of his birth, an angel called Gabriel visits a young lady, a virgin, about 13 to 16 years old. Her name was Mary. In Luke chapter 1, 31 through 32, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And we know this for we've been in the Christmas story. Even Christers know this story. You know, those who come at Christmas and Easter. They know this word. The census went out. To do, by Caesar Augustus, that everyone should go to their hometown and register. And here we have a young lady, 13 to 16 years old, pregnant with her first baby. She's traveling. She's somewhere close, either close or in her third trimester. So she's going to travel this 90 miles. The Bible doesn't really give us any indicators of what how they traveled. We just assume it's by a donkey, but 
you know, she probably didn't walk. You know, if she did, she probably beat the tar out of her husband, out of jo- uh, Joseph. I mean, yeah, that guy that she was with. <laughs> you know, she probably rode in a cart or probably did ride on a donkey. But I don't, I mean, you ask, you ladies, can you imagine riding on a donkey, you know, in your third trimester of having your child? Probably a rough journey for her. Then she gets to where she's going to be, and it, this place is just completely crowded with people. You couldn't move around, and she's ready to give birth to this baby. And the city was crowded because of the census. There was no room for her anywhere. So she has her baby in this unfamiliar place, in a place where animals were kept. Either they were there or had just been moved out. We don't know if it was a little room, if it was a cave, but... It was, we, we just call it in a, in a place behind the inn. It's kind of like if Johnny and Caitlin had their son in the shed behind the church where those tables are. I mean, really, if you think about it, that's kind of the moment, you know, where the tables are. You set up a table, and, you know, um, and out comes their son. And she's having this baby in this unsanitary area, you know, the smell of whatever you smell where animals are kept. And you listen, you know Jesus didn't just slide out and go in her arms. There he is. You know what I'm saying? She had to give birth just like every other woman gave birth. I'm sure it wasn't very... We, we sing that song, Silent Night, on Christmas time. It was anything but silent. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure she had to give a little groan, a little something, a little scream, a little cry, something... And then you think about the people, but so many people was crowded. There were probably people peeking in, trying to see what's going on. She's having a baby. Let's check it out. Let's watch, you know. And she lies him in a a trough, a manger, wraps him in uh, 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 strips of cloth and puts him in the manger. But listen to me. She had her baby in in this, this stall, or wherever she had this baby, Jesus. She had to have been, she had to have had the hope of the word. She had to have been able to cling to what the Gabriel said to her. She had to have been, she had to have been able to look upon what Gabriel said and to know everything was going to be okay. Look, I've said this and I'm going to reiterate it. I don't know where you are, but listen, this Bible, this word has something. There's something real about this word. There's something genuine that gets into you, gets inside here. When you read it and you, and you let it get in, your, get in your bones and get in your mind, you find faith that you never thought you ever had before. We've got to be people of, of God's Word. We've got to get to the place where God's Word is in our life on a regular basis. We cannot just come and read it off the screen. It's just not going to happen. We're going to have to get to know the Lord. And the only way is, is for us to get back to the place where we know the knowledge of God, the story of God, the one story here in God's Word to be knowledgeable of that. It'll give you insight and guidance and wisdom and, and strength, whatever you're facing. I don't know what you're facing today. If you hear nothing else today, if you blank everything out, I've got to say today, listen to me. Find your Word. Get it from out underneath the, uh, your car. Dust it off. Get a version you can understand and on a daily basis find some time to read your word.
you'll find strength. You'll find hope. You'll find peace. Jesus took his place in the manger so that we might have a home in heaven. I get hunger for heaven sometimes. I do. I read about heaven and I think, man, you know, that's going to be a that's going to be a great time to be in heaven, you know, and and it's going to be peaceful and joyful and we're going to get to see the Lord and it's going to be magnificent. I just know you you know you we can't really comprehend what it'll be like, you know. We all get to be in heaven and the Lord comes to take us back. And 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 I've got a lot of toys and things at my house. I got I got a couple of cars. And I want to donate every one, donate every one of those to Chris Agee because I know he's not going. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's his birthday today. I was going to pick on him, and he's not even here. How about that? Yeah, he's going to. According to the Gospels, his life, Jesus' life, Jesus healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He carried. He cared for the poor. He even brought the dead back to life. Throughout his life, many were angry with Jesus. Because he rebuked and he, he condemned hypocrisy. They were angry with him because he shared unfamiliar truths. And they shared, he shared compassion for the people that they looked down on, sinners. He demonstrated incredible powers. And these Sadducees and Pharisees and religious leaders, they felt threatened by his influence during the life of Christ. His works were considered blasphemous before uh, behavior by the Jewish uh, priest every angle that he took they tried to silence him every every time he turned around and tried to do a good thing they questioned and tried to trick him into something else the sole purpose of the life of christ is to redeem you and i from the sins of our life to become the perfect sacrifice to establish what a covenant relationship with you not a contractual one there's a difference a relationship, my friend, is a two-way street. How do we expect to know to be intimate with God? Listen, it's just like marriage. You know, if you're married, you're in a covenant relationship with your spouse. God's eyes, you become one. And you're in this covenant relationship. And if, you, if we spoke to our spouses as much time as we spoke to the Lord... You wouldn't know your wife. National average says a Christian spends five minutes in prayer per day. Can you imagine if you only spoke to your wife five minutes a day? Your wife might like it. <laughs> or if you spoke to her, you know, a couple of minutes on the weekend, you wouldn't stay together. How would you, how would you know how they feel? How would you know what was going on? You wouldn't have an intimate relationship. And the same principle goes for knowing the Lord. Communication's a two-way street, man. If you're going to communicate, you also have to what? Listen. And the only way God can really speak to you is through the confines of his word. That's why you have to know your word. You have to expect to maintain an intimate walk if you want to know anything about him. See, a contractual relationship treats God like a fire alarm switch. You know, pull in the case of emergencies. We've heard the cliche that, that sometimes we treat Jesus in a contractual form and we call him a genie in a bottle and we want to call him out of the bottle when we get in trouble. Or I call it, I made this up years ago in student ministry, shoebox Jesus. We keep him in the closet on the shelf marked Jesus and he's in the shoebox. 
And when we get in trouble or we need some help, we'll slide that box off the shelf, open it and say, oh, God, help me, Jesus. You know, Lord, give me what I need. Touch my life. Be, help me endure in this situation. And God was so merciful and kind will help you and you put the lid back on and slide him back up there until you need him again. We, we, you can't treat the Lord like he's a shoebox Jesus. There's no way you can have an intimate relationship with the Lord treating in a contractual form. He is not a genie in a bottle. Covenant is often understood, uh, understood as a contract, but the word alone contract is too narrow for the biblical nature. For this reason, it's important for us to think in terms of covenant, referencing the relationship to God. It's a relational and a faithful process to his promises. A covenant relationship is based on mutual commitment. I'm with you. I got you. I got your back. I'm going to always be with you, no matter what. Same as a, same as a, a husband and a wife. You can't go into a relationship and not be committed. My wife and I are going to celebrate 30, 33 years this July 27th. For the last 33 years, I have got the privilege to enjoy a commitment, a covenant relationship with my wife. We're committed to one another, no matter what. And that's what the Lord is to you. That's the covenant relationship he has with you. He is, he is committed to you to be with you no matter where you go or what takes place in your life. Contractual relationship is based on distrust. I'm committed to you until you do this, and then I'm not going to be committed anymore. If you don't stop eating crackers in the bed and leaving crumbs in, in the bed, I'm not going to be married to you anymore. If you don't stop, if you don't stop leaving your nasty socks in the bathroom, I'm, we're just not going to be married. I don't, I don't want to do that. That's what a contractional relationship says. It's based on distrust. When I, when I was a kid, I thought, I thought the Lord was a big, giant entity in heaven, and he had a, <clears throat> he had a big pencil with an eraser. <clears throat> and he had a, a big, giant book of names in front of me. And I knew that my name was written there because I asked him in my life. And I thought that if I messed up or did something bad, he'd erase my name out of the book. And then I would have to recommit my life to him, and then he would put my name back in the book. That's a, that's a contractual relationship. That's false. That's not how it works out. A covenant relationship surrenders your rights and assumes responsibility. I'm here to serve you and to, to love you, not to be served. I'm here to do for you. Listen, a relationship with your spouses is not 50-50. It's a 100-100 relationship. You have to give sometimes when your spouse doesn't give. You have to endure sometimes when your spouse is not enduring. Sometimes it's it has to be a relationship where it's not, I want to be served by you, but I want to serve you. Sometimes you got to cook a dinner or two. I'm, I'm now a domestic dad, you know, a domestic husband. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the main laundry guy. I'm the main cook. I'm the main clean guy, you know. I, I get the mail. I pay the bills. I, I do all the domestic things at home. It's so, it, it's so fascinating that, I, you know, but I'm at home. My wife's at work, and I'm at home, and, and a covenant relationship doesn't say, when you get home, girl, you better have some food on the table for me. You know what I'm saying? And then when you get done with food, you got to go do, there's three piles of laundry in the bag, 700 towels, because your daughter decided to clean her room, and that gave us three loads of laundry. 
It doesn't work like that, does it? That's not how it is. A contractional relationship protects rights and puts off responsibility. What about me? Take care of me. The old, the new trinity for our 2023, me, myself, and I. Me, myself, and I. What about me? Take care of me. What's, what's you, you owe me. What's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. It's the kind of mindset we have. A covenant relationship has the interest of the other in mind. A contractual relationship has a personal convenience in mind. The power and purpose of the covenant relationship is to enable us to walk in the fullness of our salvation with Jesus. In closing today, you know, I want to just read a piece of scripture that talks about Jesus becoming our high priest. Jesus did become the high priest. It's so fascinating. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let me read that again. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. And under the Levitical law, the priest was the only person that could go before the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, the high priest. They would tie a rope around his leg. And if he had anything in his life that didn't need to be there, he would die in the presence of God. That's what it was like to go before the throne of grace. And they would drag him out, you know, by the rope because he died in the presence of God. But Jesus, Jesus became the high priest. Oh, glory to God. He became the ultimate sacrifice so that we don't have to tie a rope around our leg before we go before the, the, the throne room, the grace of God. We can go before the throne room and the grace of God right now, this moment. Pray a prayer. Have faith in God. Petition what we need from the Lord. He can talk to us and we to Him. We don't have to go through a high priest anymore. Through, through the grace and the love and the joy of the Lord, we find, we find hope. If there's anything this world needs now, more of it, it's hope. We've got to get in the habit of going before the throne of grace on a regular basis and asking the Lord and telling the Lord and pleading with the Lord and let me know how much we love him and that he cares for us. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. He became the high priest. He became the, the sacrifice. Jesus didn't come to do away with it. And the message of the Bible is very simple. The message of Christ in his life was repent for the kingdom of God was at hand. In his death, I'm going to read one piece of scripture. It's not going to be on your screen. Isaiah 53, 5 and 7. It's familiar to you though. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement was brought of us peace. And we with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone 
to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. But yet he never opened his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to slaughter. And like a sheep that, that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Listen, knowing the Lord is one of the most comforting and joyful things that you could have in your life. I don't know where you are as far as knowing the Lord, but my prayer today is that during this reflection time when Johnny plays and sings a song, that you'll ask Christ in, that you'll, that you'll take full advantage of the sacrifice that Christ had for us. You would take full advantage of, of the mercy and grace that God's offered. You'll invite him in. Say, Lord, come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Forgive me of my sins. And he will wash all of your sins away. When I did that as a young man, I, it was August. I remember like it was yesterday, August 28, 1988. Morning service. I cried. I cried when they sang how great they are, you know, that's the kind of songs they sang back in those days, and I cried at Amazing Grace, I was just, I was so heavy under sin, and, and when I went to the altar uh, that day, we had altar calls where we would go forward, and I prayed that prayer, I said, Lord, I don't, I don't you know, I didn't really, I didn't know how to pray, I just did the best I could, I said, Lord, you, you know, would you come into my life like the pastor talked about, would you wash me free? And I don't know how to explain it, friend. You know, I, I don't care if you believe me or not, but it was like a weight. People say that all the time. But, friend, it was like a, it was like I, I could stand up straight again because the weight of the world was taken off of me. Christ did that for me. He can do that for you this morning. I'm going to pray. Johnny's going to sing a song. And during that time, I want you to reflect on the Lord. And if you have to, if you want to, invite him in. He loves you. He cares about you. He really does. Father, this morning, my prayer is that someone, somewhere today, first will be inspired by your word, Lord, because your word is so important to our lives. They'll be inspired to go home or go to the bookstore and find them a Bible they can read and understand. God, that they can... They can find hope and joy and peace in your word and no longer just be a, a read a, a Bible verse off the screen and that be the extent of their reading. It is so important, God, that your word gets inside us and in our brain and our bodies and our, our bones, Lord. I pray, Lord, that somebody this morning would invite you in and know your strength and know your purpose and your design. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.